0: If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I'd ask that you would open it with me to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. If you came in, you got one of these bulletins on the back of that. There'll be some notes if you want to use that during our time together in the Word. Exodus 33 is where we're going to continue as we've been walking through this book of Exodus together. Thank you, Greg, and those that serve with you in leading us in worship. And uh, we are grateful that we get a chance to be in the house of the Lord this morning. We've been walking through the Book of Exodus for quite a while now. We've been looking at um, examples and models and principles and teachings and, and and just a picture of how God sets people apart and how those people that have been set apart then respond back. To God, And so as God then brings his people out of Egypt and takes them to the promised land and in that process he reveals himself to the people. He reveals the people to themselves on things about them and then he gives them instruction. And during the course of them coming out of Egypt and them heading to the promised land, there are all sorts of stories and events and activities and actions and behaviors that we see on display that we are still seeing even today so as we're walking through this book of Exodus we've been looking to see what is God saying about himself what is God showing us about ourselves and then what should our response be back God. So if you remember several weeks ago, we are talking about sin. We are talking specifically about the deceit of sin. If you go back to in in the memory several weeks ago in Exodus chapter 32, Moses is up on the mountain and God is revealing um, his word, his commandments, his expectations for the people. God is giving all of this to Moses. And while him and Moses are up on the mountain, you have Aaron and the people at the base of the mountain. And they decide to be a little rambunctious. And they decide to do their own thing. And so they decide to make their own gods and they decide to create their own gods and they begin to start worshiping these idols. So you see the deceit of sin and how it creeps into the pe- the life of the people there in Exodus 32. Well then God says to Moses, Moses this is what the people have done Moses comes down the mountain and last week we are looking at the effect of sin and what sin does to us as we are engaging in sin. And so Moses comes back, he confronts Aaron and he says Aaron what have you done? And if you remember from last week Aaron did three different things that I pointed out to you from the scriptures he defended himself, he he deflected the responsibility from himself and he distorted exactly what he had done and the sin that he had committed. You might be here this morning. You may say, well, Spence, isn't that enough talk about sin? I don't think we talk about sin enough. You see, In the Bible, and scripturally speaking, the idea, the doctrine, if you will, of sin, it is connected to our understanding or our view of man. Our view of man, or our understanding of who we are, is connected to our view of God. And our view of God is connected to our understanding of the work of Christ on our behalf. And the work of Christ on our behalf is connected to our understanding of what salvation is. They are all connected. And if you do not have sin, you do not need a Savior. And if you do not have sin, then you do not have the truthfulness of God's Word. And yet, in so many times, this world and this culture, from different angles and from different ways and different means... They are continually trying to redefine what sin is. So as we get here in this text, it's not that I'm just trying to drag on something or just trying to grind something in the dirt. It is foundational to our view of who we are in relation to God. So, a couple weeks ago, we were talking about the deceit of sin and how sin has a way of tempting us and and getting its fingerlings and its roots into our lives. Last week, we talked about the effect of sin and how that sin can then take effect and it can change our rationality. It can change our logical thinking. It can change our personalities and our behaviors. That's what sin does. And then this morning in Exodus 33, we see God's response to the people, kind of an initial response, and we see the result of sin. So, we see they had been tempted to sin, they did sin, and now Now we see it from God's perspective and from his view, then what is the result of their sin? And my point this morning, my overarching point is to remind us this is still how God sees sin. So as we are coming into it, we get an opportunity to see the failures, the successes, but we get to be able to see how the people are tempted, how they succumb to sin, and then how God responds and what is the result of their sin. So in Exodus 33, at the very first part you see, it says the Lord said to Moses. So what we're going to read is God then giving instruction to Moses, okay, because the people have sinned, now this is going to be the result. I submit to you this morning, these reminders, these truths that we're going to look at in these first six verses of Exodus chapter 33, these same reminders and these same truths are still a reality today. And hopefully this will give us, as a body of believers, a greater understanding not just of the effect that sin has in our lives, but the way that God views the sin. In our lives. So starting in chapter 3 in verse 1. We, we get the result of sin on display. It says in verse 1. It says the Lord said to Moses. Depart. Go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I have swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you. I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey." You may find yourself reading these first few verses and you might think to yourself, now what is going on? Why is this taking place? Isn't just the chapter four, the people made idols. God was mad with the people because they made the idols. God told Moses that he was going to destroy the people because they made the idols. So what is going on? Well, what is going on, I submit to you, is that God is showing that even in the midst of our sin, God is still faithful. God is still faithful to us even if we are faithless to Him. It doesn't matter about how good you've been or your performance or your works or your money or your good deeds. The faithfulness of God is not dependent upon you or I. The faithfulness of God is because He is God. And here in this text, God is remembering and God is holding true to what He had done. God had promised them The land God had told them all the way back even before Moses. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 where God goes to Abram and he says, Abram, I am going to give this to you and your descendants and the people that come after you. God had made a promise and God was going to be faithful to his promise. Sometimes you hear in the world today that people will say, well, God is mad at me and God is being mean to me. It's not as if God is mad and upset at you and he's taking something out in vengeance or bitterness. No, God is faithful and God will do what he has said he will do. So in these first three verses, God says, okay, I will get up, go, that's verse one, depart, go up from here. And he even says, I will send an angel. This is verse two. I will send an angel before you. God was going to provide and direct them in the way that they should go. And so as he's looking at Moses, and by extension, he's looking at the people and he says, because I'm faithful. Not because you're obedient, not because you're good, not because you've made me happy, not because you have kissed up to me, but because I am faithful and I am good, I will do what I said I will do. Here's the danger. Sometimes you and I in our humanity, we mistake that for approval. Sometimes... We mistake the faithfulness of God for the approval of God. And sometimes we think that because God has not smited us and he has not struck us down and because he has not utterly destroyed us, then that must mean that he is okay with our decisions or our behaviors or our choices. We sometimes are tempted to mistake the faithfulness of God with the approval of God. If you parents raise children, you have probably seen this before where that little child, you have already told that little child not to play with the pictures on the end table. And yet that little child goes, pulls himself up on that end table, gets ready to play with the pictures, looks at you, and when you do not say no or stop it or get away, they take that silence as approval and they begin to play with the pictures. And then you get on to them and they look at you like, well, you didn't say no. Yes, I did say no five times before this. But they are mistaking my silence. They're mistaking my lack of words as approval. Sometimes we will take this book and we will close it. And then we will come over here. And we'll engage in what kind of ever behavior we want to engage in. And we just assume because God continues to give us oxygen to breathe. And he continues to allow us to walk upright. And he continues the world spinning in its axis. Then that must mean that God has given approval. And we are denying and we are ignoring everything that God has told us in this word that says to the contrary. And so one of the results... One of the reminders that we see right here in these pages is that God's faithfulness is not dependent upon my actions, my goodness, or my failures. God is still faithful even when I am faithless. And let us not, let us not mistake the faithfulness of God for the approval of God In our sin, because you look there in the last, the second part of verse three, and you see God says, God says, I am faithful and I will be faithful. That is true about God. But notice what it says in the second part of verse three it says, But I will not go up among you. God says, I will be faithful, but God is still just. God is faithful, but God is still just. What do I mean by just? Just is a reference or a word to describe that God has a standard. He has his word. He has a bar. I, I, I think Jimmy said earlier this morning, a, a plumb line. You, you you take a level, and there is what is level and what is not level. There is what is true and what is not true. There is what is right and there is what is wrong. There is what is okay and there is what is not okay. And God has a standard, and God has a God has a limit, and God has given us His word, and God says, you know what? If you violate that, my justice, my justness requires that I not allow people to make a mockery or to violate or be blasphemous against my standard. And so God is not just the loving God, but he's also the just God that says, because you have sinned, then that now means I have to respond to you. And so it says there in verse 3, God says, but I will not go up among you. Why? Lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. What's the problem? The problem is, is that the people had sinned against God. Maybe, maybe, hopefully, it's most simplest explanation. The problem with sin is that sin rejects God's authority. The reason why sin is an affront to God is because it rejects God's authority. When we sin, and it has multiple different names, multiple different colors, multiple different circumstances and shades to go with it, but when we sin, what we are doing is we are saying we choose a different God to submit and To serve, and when we sin, we reject the authority of God over our lives. Now, you can say, Well, I've heard it described that there's a lot of ways we could cut this, but at its base, we sin, we reject the authority of God, and so God says, I will not go among you because when you reject me, then that then response my response is wrath, judgment. Etc., etc. So God says, Listen, you people, you go on up because I am faithful, but because I am just, I will not go with you. Why? Because of their sin. You may say, Well, Spence, that's harsh, that's not very kind. Why couldn't God just have a little bit of wiggle room? Why couldn't God just say, well, I know you didn't do it, so don't do it again. Why can't God have a little bit of flexibility? Isn't that what the world is trying to get us to do right now? The world wants us to be tolerant of the world, but the world is justified in not being tolerant of us. You see, tolerance is not a one-way street. If you're going to tell me that I have to be tolerant over your decisions... Then that means that you have to be tolerant over my objection to your decisions, and, and that's where we're at right now. Is we're in a we're in a season where tolerance is a one-way street, and there's all sorts of people out there that are going. You know what? You need to compromise with my values. You need to capitulate and give up your standards. But the problem is, is that when it comes to the Word of God and when it comes to the revealed character of God, compromise and capitulation do not. Equal justice. And if God says, you know what? What is just is to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for their sin. But now we've gone 3,000 years. I don't feel like I'm there anymore. So now I'm going to let these people get away with the same sin. That is not justice. And because justice is one of the foundation characteristics and attributes to God. If God violates his justice, then he ceases to be God. See, the crutch of the whole picture of the problem with sin is you're dealing with the holiness of God. It's not a matter of love. It's a matter of holiness. And God says, this is my holiness. My holiness is such that when you sin against me, there, there becomes a penalty. There is a consequence. There is a result when you sin against me. Me And I want you to pick it up there in the the second part of verse 3. Notice the language that is used. Now I realize that we're all looking at an English translation. We're not looking at it in the original Hebrew. So I realize that some of you may say, well, it may not be that exact. I think it is that exact. God doesn't say, and if you'll look at it, God doesn't say, but I might not go with you. He doesn't say that I should not go with you. He doesn't say that I probably will not go with you. He says, but I will not go up among you. In other words, God is saying that this is not up for discussion. This is not up for popular opinion. This is not up for a vote. This is how serious this is. I am a holy God, and you are a now sinful people, and the two cannot be Co-inside. And somewhere along the way, we think that our sin shouldn't matter. Or that our sin shouldn't be a big deal. Or that God should give us a break because we're not as great of a sinner as the person down the street. Or because they sin before I sin, that means my sin's okay. Or because they're doing the same sin that I'm doing, that means that my sin is now justified because of their sin. Or because God hasn't done something about their sin, therefore I'm justified in committing the same sin. And if God gets on to me, well that's not fair because you didn't get on to him. And we start misapplying, we start misidentifying, we start misusing the view of God towards sin. Now, I understand that. You might be here this morning. You might say, well, Spence, you're talking about the justice of God. You're talking about God's view of sin. Where's the sweet stuff like grace and mercy and love and forgiveness and all of those things? May I remind you this morning that those things are only true because God is just. If God was not just, then he could not be merciful. If God was not just, then he could not show grace. If God was not just then there would be no need for forgiveness. It's the justice of God that then allows for grace, mercy, love, forgiveness, and all of those things to come. It was in John chapter 1 and verse 14 where John is writing about the coming of Jesus. And he talks about when he came, he was full of both grace and Truth. The idea that he came and he said, This is true. This is not up for debate. This is not up for discussion. This is true. But with that being true, I can now also show grace and mercy. Because one thing is true, the other can be. True. And so when God comes into the picture here at the last part of verse 3, he says, you can go up, but I'm not going to go up with you because my justice is not able to abide with your sinfulness without something else. So then you get down to verse 4. So God responds to the people, and then you see the people responding to God. So when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments, for the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. Now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. You may say, well, Spence, what is this reminding us about sin? It's reminding us about sin in the way that we are responsible So the first three verses, God is showing that he is faithful. He will do what he said he will do. But yet you get to the second part of verse 3 and he reminds us that he is still faithful. Just, But then you get down to verse 4, down through verse 6, we see the responsibility of the people. So he comes to the people and he says, this is what you've done. And so what is the responsibility of the people? The people realize of their sin, and then how do they respond? They understood that, hey, we have sinned. You don't see the language there of them going, hey, that's Aaron's fault. You need to go talk to Aaron. Or, hey, that's Joshua's fault. You need to go talk to Joshua. They understood that they had sinned. This brings up a question that all of us have to answer. All of us have to answer the same question at some point in our lives. What are you going to do with your sin? A saved person has to ask the question. A lost person has to ask the question. What are you going to do with your sin? That's the question that necessitates a Savior. What are you going to do? With your sin. So the people here in this text, the people here in the story, they realize that they have sinned against God and they're thinking, okay, so we've sinned against God. That's not good. This holy, omnipotent, omniscient. God, we have sinned against this God, and now we are standing in judgment before this God. We have sinned against the holiness of God. We've rejected his authority, we've rejected his deity, we've rejected his place in our lives, and now we are responsible. So, what do they do? Verse 4 they mourned, and nobody put on his ornaments. Now that idea of ornaments, some of your translations may have a little different language there, but it's the idea of the jewelry. It's the idea of the external fashions. It's the external things that they would have. Now in that setting, the best that I understand, I didn't live back then. I really haven't gone back in time to look back then. But the way I understand about how that worked back then is they would display a lot of their emotions and their feelings based upon their outward appearance. And that is why you see throughout the Old Testament that they would put on sackcloth and put ashes on their heads and they would sit in the, in the ash pit. And that was a way of demonstrating their inward posture. their are in your condition of the heart. And so, best of my understanding is, is as these Hebrews, as they were coming out of Egypt and they're heading down on good days, on sunny days, man, they would put on the jewelry and they'd be dressed to the nines. And they're like, oh, this is going to be a great day, good day, cool day. So whenever they are in mourning or sadness or trying to reflect a contrition of their heart... They would take off the jewelry, they'd take off the ornaments, and they'd look drab. They would, they, would, they would look sorrowful. And so it says there in the text that they mourned and they took off the ornaments. Translation, they didn't fix their hair. They stayed in their pajama pants, had their slippers on, didn't get out of the house, stayed on the couch watching Gilmore Girls. That's what they were doing. problem is that mourning does not absolve our sin. You and I can be sorry, but sorry and repentance are not the same thing. It can be that you are sorry and repentant, or you can just be sorry that you got caught You can look at the policeman as you were on the side of the road, and you can look at him and say, I'm sorry, officer. I did not mean to be speeding. Lie. I am sorry, officer. I will slow down. Lie. I am sorry, officer. Thank you for giving me a warning. You have a nice day. Lie. So you can say, sorry, 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 and you are not sorry. Sorry. So the people here in the story, I mean, they, they, they mourn. They're like, oh, this is bad. Oh, this is really bad. Oh, this couldn't get any worse. They, they take off their jewelry. They take off their jewelry and they put on the appearance, but it doesn't absolve them of their sin. And so, you, so it's like they're doing this. And then it says there in verse 5, the Lord said to them, you are a stiff-necked people. I should not go up among you. And then you get down to verse 6. <coughs> Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now this is the understanding uh, Stuart Douglas is a, is a commentary and the way he kind of put it I thought was insightful. He, he was making the connection that when they stripped off their ornaments it was a way of saying we don't know how God is now going to treat us or what God is going to do. And so we are sitting here going in a little bit of a, a trepidation if you will saying we know we've sinned against God and so now we're awaiting for God's judgment on us. And when it talks about there some of your translation like the NIV or, or in other translations may say it differently but here in the translation I'm looking at it says from now... Onward. It gives the indication and the, and the implication there in the Hebrew that they left that off because for the next so many years they were still a little bit anxious. They were still a little bit concerned about how then God would respond to their sin. It was an attitude that they understood the gravity of their sin. They understood the depth of their sin. They understood the violation of their sin and they were in fear. Of what God would do about their sin. So the result of sin from hearing the people. Is they understand that the faithfulness of God is there. Whether they are faithful or not. But God also teaches them and shows them the justice of God. But also teaches the responsibility of the people. And in many ways that's where you and I are at this morning. God is faithful to us regardless of how we are to him you know there's not another relationship that we know that is like that you may say well that's really similar to like a parent and their child it doesn't even come close god is faithful to us even when we are faithless to him but at the same time we must understand and we must recognize and remind ourselves on a regular basis that god is still just that god has a standard that god has A bar. That there is such thing as what is true and what is not true. And God has already established that and God has revealed that to us in his word. And it's not a matter of you and I going and trying to negotiate with God or trying to bargain with God or trying to barter with God or trying to barrage God and wear God down. God has spoken. And He is just. And when it comes to our sin, I cannot point at you and you cannot point at me because we are responsible for our sin. But can you imagine? Can you imagine sitting there in Exodus 33 and you are sitting there and you've got the ornaments off, you're in mourning, but what hope do you have? And that is why it is such an amazing privilege that you and I have in 2023 Because our story is not solely contained in Exodus 33. Our story goes on. And that is how we come to these three core values that we've been looking at as a church. How do we use a place like Exodus 33 to help build families, to help teach the Bible, to help be the church? Well, we understand where we're sitting at in this season of history. We understand where we're at on this side of the cross. We understand that in verse 6 they were stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Or You had a people that thought, "We don't know what God is going to do." And now in 2023, we are way past Exodus 33 and we know what God was going to do. God was going to send his son. God's son was going to live a sinless life. God's son was going to die on a cross. God's son was going to pay the penalty for My sin and for your sin, God's son was going to die on that cross. He was going to be buried. He was going to raise on the third day, defeating death. And he was going to make it possible that you and I can have a relationship and fellowship with God restored. Not on the basis of your merit or your worth, but on the work of his son, Jesus Christ. Which is why our families, and I put this there in your notes, our families' greatest need is Jesus. So when we look at Exodus 33 and we're thinking to ourselves, man, what a hopeless situation. What a dreary situation. What a moment when these people have nothing to look forward to. And then you and I come away from this and going, we understand because our sin is still just as real in the eyes of God. And God's justice is still real just as much as it was then as it is now. And because God is just. Penalty for sin must be paid and we are now responsible before God for our sins but Jesus but God being rich in mercy towards us because of who God is and because of what Christ has done we have so the result of sin is not taking away from the gravity of sin. The result of sin is recognizing the need for a savior. So our families our family's greatest need is Jesus. And yet when it comes to teaching the Bible we are able to teach people that God is just That is the truth. But God is also the justifier. This comes out of Romans chapter 3 where he talks about that God is the just and the justifier. That because he sent his son, he provided the way of redemption and so God's justice is satisfied by the work of Christ on the cross. But it doesn't do us any good as a church to go to people and to say, you're not a sinner. You don't need a savior. You had done nothing wrong and we're going to bend the rules. We're going to manipulate the rules. We're going to adjust the rules to devalue their sin before God because we don't want to make them feel bad and we want to be hard-hearted, we are missing an opportunity to show them their reality and their standing before God while also showing them the hope of grace and love and mercy in God. So you get here to Exodus 33 and I leave thinking thank you that my story doesn't stop there. Thank you that I'm not stuck out in the wilderness in my pajamas and slippers. No hope for tomorrow. Thank you that I'm not going to spend the rest of my life anxious and apprehensive because the judgment of God could come upon me at any moment. Thank you that I'm not left with understanding that I have sinned against a holy, righteous, just God. But I don't know how to then be redeemed and restored because I have no way back to God. Thank you that I have the good news of Jesus Christ to not only live by, but to then to share with other people, which then comes to this last one. What do we do as a church? We live like we have been forgiven. Years ago, Tim McGraw released a song, Live Like You Were Dying. My understanding of the gist of the song, guy goes in the doctor, gets a bad prognosis from the doctor. Doctor said you only got so many days to live. So the guy goes out and he acts like this is going to be the last day he's going to have. And the whole, th- my understanding, you may say, well, that's not the, what the song was about. My understanding of the song is the guy just lives every single day like he's dying. He knows he's going to die, so it's a bucket list or whatever it was. Be that's the way he lived. And yet, when we think about it in relation to the church, I mean, there are so many things within the church that we don't live like we've been forgiven. We don't live like we understand that there is a righteous God that we are going to be responsible to, but because of Jesus Christ has come. Do you realize, do you understand, yes, you might be forgiven, but you are still responsible for God's word and your obedience to God's word. Yes, you may say, well, I've been forgiven and I'm saved and so I don't have to worry about it. Wrong. Go back to Romans. Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 7, Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 9. He tells you that just because you've been forgiven doesn't mean that then you get, a, get out of jail free card to go do whatever you you want. If you realize what you've been forgiven of, then that's going to make a difference in what you then do in your life moving forward. And yet, church, my plea to you this morning is we could do a better job of living like we've been forgiven. We could do a better job of living like we have a good news to share. We could do a better job of rejoicing and showing gratitude for the grace and the mercy of God upon our lives. We could do a better job of showing appreciation that our story does not end in Exodus chapter 33. Because we understand that even though that is the result of our sin because God so loved the world He gave His only Son that whoever would believe in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. We can know this morning that there is a result of sin. And praise be to God that Jesus has stepped in our place. I don't know where you're at this morning, but I'm pretty confident. In fact, I'm very, very confident that every single one of you in this room including me, has sinned against God. And I'm very, very confident that every single person in this room, God loves. So what's the difference between us? Well, some of us in this room are living under the accountability and the justice of God in the grace of God. Some of us are wrestling with our Obedience to God, our submission to God, and God's authority over our lives. Some of us this morning are wrestling with decisions that we know that God has put on our hearts, but we're not ready to pursue. Some of us are wrestling with the definition of sin and working off of this definition versus working off the world's definition. We are at different places when it comes to our standing, our relationship, and our fellowship with God. But one thing is true. God is faithful, God is just, and we are responsible. I guess that's three things that are true. So this morning, every single one of us has an opportunity to respond. How do we respond to our sin in view of God? Let's pray.